This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's a Halloween episode, and at the end of the show, I'll tell an extended ghost story of sorts about this week's creature. Before that, though, I'll be talking about the strange, semi-historical phenomenon of doppelgangers, ghostly doubles of ill omen that will either signal your impending doom, or be really mad at you for staying in bed drinking beer instead of going to work. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 14. Do not go gentle into that good night. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Today we're taking a short break from the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok to do a Halloween episode. I thought about telling ghost stories, but I'm personally not a fan of a lot of the sadistic or overly bloody horror, and when it comes to myths and legends, it can be tough to find the stories that are both creepy and where you don't see the conclusion coming from miles off. That's why I like The Boy Who Drew Cat so much a few episodes back. I'm a much bigger fan of those things that exist in the in-between spaces between reality and fiction. You know, like a legend. The things that could be real are the most creepy. That's why I'll be telling stories about real-life apparitions. I'll be telling the story of doppelgangers, an ominous, ghostly devil of a person that supposedly foretells their doom. What I find the most bizarre is that these apparitions have their roots in real life. Several prominent historical, political, and literary figures have seen ghostly doppelgangers of themselves or their loved ones, including Abraham Lincoln, Queen Elizabeth I, Catherine the Great, John Donne, and Percy Shelley. The word doppelganger is a German one, and it means double-goer or double-walker. When you think of a doppelganger, you probably think of a twin, particularly an evil one, like Spock with a goatee. As it turns out, the actual idea of a doppelganger includes that conception and so much more. It's an ancient belief from many, many cultures that maintains that everyone has a ghostly double. There are variations on the belief, but one conception that is carried over from many cultures has been that if you, or someone you know, sees your doppelganger, then that is a bad omen. It usually foretells death, but it can also mean bad luck or misfortune. In the light of all the things I've talked about in this podcast, the idea of a doppelganger isn't that weird. What I find ominous, though, about doppelgangers is that so many prominent people in history have seen their ghostly doubles of themselves, or someone they cared about, before they met with death or extreme misfortune. The romantic poet Percy Shelley was married to Mary Shelley, the author of the book Frankenstein. And when I say romantic poet, I mean that he was one of the key poets of the Romanticism movement, one that lauded the natural world, the mystic and the supernatural, individualism, and other things. It wasn't focused at all on love poems. This is almost completely unrelated to the story, but as an English major, I've sworn a blood oath to correct mistakes in grammar, punctuation, and clear up common misconceptions about poetry wherever they may arise. It's something all third-year English majors have to do. Anyway... Like many of the Romantic poets, Percy Shelley had a short and tumultuous life. Three months before he died at the age of 29, Percy and Mary and friends rented a house on the Italian coast. Now, everyone was having a legitimately terrible summer. With the Shelleys, there was another couple, and Mary's stepsister, Claire. Things started out badly, as even before they got there, they hear that Claire's young daughter, recovering from an illness at a convent, had died at the age of five. For some reason, they stayed on vacation, but everyone was forlorn. Mary and Percy Shelley did 
not have a great marriage. And when they weren't fighting in front of their friends and making things horribly awkward, they were very cold to one another. The stress was compounded since Mary was pregnant. Again. She had lost three out of four of her previous children to miscarriages, and she was rightfully terrified of having the baby. Percy starts to become a little unhinged. Standing out of the veranda at night, he's by himself when he sees, in the water, a small form slowly stand up in the darkness. It's a child, rising out in the surf, far off. The thing turns its head to look at the terrified Percy, and they lock eyes. It smiles a joyful, haunting smile, and Percy spins around to get his friend's attention. When he looks back, it's gone. A few weeks later, Mary was walking through the house when she collapsed. She suffered another miscarriage and was quickly bleeding out. Percy rushed her to the bathroom and forced her to sit in a bath of ice. She's kept from dying here, but Percy and the other guests cared for her over the next several days. One week later, Percy was standing out on the veranda, looking at the ocean, when he heard someone approaching him. He half looked, thinking it was his friend, Mr. Williams, but something caught his eye. Mr. Williams was dressed exactly like him. He turned around and found that it wasn't Mr. Williams at all. He was looking at himself. The being said one phrase to him. How long do you mean to be content? Before it resumed its walk. When it got to the end of the veranda, it disappeared. Now this is a little creepy, but not that noteworthy. I've worked in the field of neuropsychology research, and the brain does weird, weird things when under stress, and Percy was under a lot of it. The only thing? The story was corroborated. Mrs. Williams, a friend of the Shelleys on vacation with them, was sitting at the window looking out near the end of the veranda a few days later. There were no doors in the back of the house beyond this window, and the only way off was a 20-foot drop down a wall. She saw Percy pass wordlessly, dressed as he's normally dressed, and then not return. She didn't think anything of it, and some time passed, and then she saw him stroll by again, from the same direction as before. The realization that this wasn't possible dawned on her just as he passed out of sight of the window, and she shot up and went outside, only to find the veranda empty. She rushed to the edge, but didn't see Percy's body on the ground at the bottom of the wall. Confused, she found someone and asked if Percy had jumped from the wall. The person said that Percy left that morning. He'd been miles away from the house all day. What was she talking about? Percy started to deteriorate further after that. He had visions of the house being overrun with the ocean, of himself strangling his wife Mary, and of Mr. and Mrs. Williams covered in blood. On July 1st, Shelley met up with his friend, Lord Byron, for a boat race about 50 miles down the coast. No word on how the race went, but a week later, Percy insisted that they must return to Larisi, despite warnings of bad weather. He, Mr. Williams, and an 18-year-old boy sailed north. A violent storm picked up, and another ship risked it to try to come and rescue them. For some reason, Percy refused and wouldn't let the other two leave the boat either. That would be the last time they were seen alive. Ten days later, the remains of the ship washed up on the coast. Percy Shelley was only identifiable by his clothes and the copy of John Keats' poems he had in his pocket. His face and hands had already been eaten away by the sea. Now, Percy Shelley was a very capricious, emotional, and imaginative man. 
And I'm not a psychologist, but I think it's safe to say that he suffered from some sort of mental breakdown toward the end of his life. Combine that with the stress of losing a child, nearly losing your wife, and the fact that he may have been suicidal to begin with, and the whole doppelganger thing isn't really that surprising at all. It would be some weird historical oddity if he were the only one, but he wasn't. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th American president during the American Civil War, was standing at the mirror one evening and sat down. There, behind him, appeared a chalk-white vision of himself. He stood up and turned around, and nothing was there. Looking at the mirror, it was gone. He sat down again, and again it appeared. Standing up, it disappeared. He went and laid down on the bed, convinced that he must be tired. And there it was, this pale, ghostly version of his face, watching him as he slept. Days later, he returned to the room. He had to try it again, and sure enough, when he sat down, it appeared. The somber, ghostly form just stared at him. It wasn't mimicking his actions or anything. Lincoln rushed to show his wife. He came back into the room, sat down, but the face wouldn't appear. Try as he might, from here on out, the ghostly double in the mirror would never reappear. He told his wife all about what he had seen, and she actually believed him. She said, offhandedly, that she thought it was a sign that Lincoln would be elected to a second term, but since the doppelganger was so pale and deathly, that he wouldn't survive it. As we know, on April 14, 1865, just one month after giving his inaugural address for the second term, Lincoln was shot and killed. He wasn't the only head of state that had seen his doppelganger. Not much exists on Queen Elizabeth I running with her doppelganger. She went into her bedroom one evening to find someone in her bed, pale as death and barely breathing. She got closer and realized it was her in the bed. She ran out to tell someone, and when the attendants returned to her, she found the bed empty, undisturbed. She died shortly thereafter. There was another world leader who, literally, did not take the news of her doppelganger lying down. Catherine the Great, the renowned 18th century Russian ruler, was surprised by knocking at her bedroom door while she slept. The 67-year-old empress rose quickly and learned that there was a ghostly double of her sitting on the throne. As she ran to the throne room, she yelled for the guards to follow her, which they did, and when they got there, they saw the pale, ghostly form of Catherine the Great sitting on the throne, taking no notice of her, and staring off into the distance. Not hesitating for a moment, she ordered the sentries to shoot it. What happened after she gave that order is lost to history, and the story could very easily be made up, but after reading so many people cowering in the face of fate after seeing their double, it was nice to see one not blindly accepting her doom, but instead ordering it shot. Unfortunately, even Catherine the Great couldn't escape the curse of seeing her doppelganger, and she suffered a fatal stroke soon after the event. When the friends of 16th century English poet John Donne came to get him for dinner, they found him terrified and anxious. His friends were confused. They had only left him for 20 to 30 minutes, but he seemed completely shocked. He pointed to a door in the room and told them a story. He heard something coming from the other room and thought it odd because he was sitting by the only door out to the hallway. He looked up and saw a woman walking slowly by the door. Her hair was down over her face. She was in a nightgown, and he couldn't tell who it was. He got up and walked to the door, asking her her name and what she was doing there. He couldn't place it, but something was strangely familiar about her. 
She stopped in the middle of the doorway and slowly turned her head. When she did, he could see what her long, tangled, sweaty hair was hiding. It was the body of a dead newborn. He looked up into her face. It was the ghostly form of his wife. As soon as their eyes met, the woman and child vanished from the room. Unknown to the poet, that night, some say at the same time he saw the ghostly vision, his pregnant wife gave birth to a stillborn baby in a different city. Like I said before, there are a lot of variations in the belief of doppelgangers. The German dramatist and poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was actually calmed by his doppelganger. He left a woman one evening and was riding along the road. In the fog up ahead, he saw a figure approach on horseback, and before he saw the man's face, he noticed the clothing. It was a gray suit with a gold trim. When he passed by him, the man didn't greet him, but looked at him directly in the eyes. Johann was looking at himself. The bean passed by, and when Johann recovered, he turned around, but the man was gone. He didn't feel scared, but reports being strangely comforted by the apparition. Time passed, years actually, and he forgot all about the event. He got dressed without thinking about it one night, and set out that evening to travel the road back to meet the woman. As he passed the spot where he had seen his double eight years before, he suddenly remembered it, and looked down. He was wearing a gray suit with gold trim. There have been more modern stories of doppelgangers. One of which I found pretty odd and interesting was more recent, about 25 years ago. A young man saw his doppelganger and interacted with it. Actually, it shook him so badly that he tried to kill himself. A 21-year-old man with seizures stopped taking his anticonvulsant medications. Worse, instead of taking his medication, he stayed in bed all morning drinking beer. As drinking way too much beer before 10 a.m. will do, he began to feel sick and got out of bed. As he stumbled toward the bathroom, he heard something behind him and turned around to see himself still laying in bed. Rather than be scared by it, he was angry. He was angry with himself for not going to work, for being irresponsible, for being drunk. He grabbed his doppelganger and shook it, screaming at it. Unlike all the other stories of doubles, though, he experienced something different. As he shook the man in his bed, his awareness jumped back into the double in the bed. He was immediately terrified, experiencing a double of himself shaking him and yelling at him. Then, his awareness jumped back into the man standing above himself in bed, yelling, then back to the man in the bed. Eventually, the line became too blurred as to who he actually was. He was so confused, he ran to his window, several stories up, and threw himself out of it because he couldn't take it. He survived, and they found that he had a brain tumor. When it was removed, his seizures stopped, and he never had that sort of experience again. Hutoscopy is the term used in psychiatry and neurology for seeing one's own body at a distance, and the doppelganger phenomenon can be considered as an out-of-body experience of sorts. As mentioned just now, it's been linked to epilepsy, and through stimulating different regions of the brain, it's impossible for over 10 years to simulate out-of-body experiences in the lab. I have one more story of a doppelganger. A French writer from the 19th century named Guy de Maupassant was sitting in a locked room, suffering from writer's block. He heard footsteps behind him, 
and was frustrated because he had said he was not to be disturbed. When he turned around, it dawned on him that the door had been locked. He watched himself walk across the room and sit down. Immediately, this image of himself, this other, began dictating to him. It was a story. He hurriedly took it down, and when he finished, the thing vanished in front of him. In the short story, the narrator senses a presence all around him, following him, watching him. He feels like he sees a shadowy man on the edges of his vision. He can't sleep because he knows it's watching him, and if he does fall asleep, he'll just wake up, feeling as if something was kneeling on his chest. His mind becomes dominated by thoughts of this man, this creature he calls the Orla. He learns that it's a ghost that follows people around, draining them of their life and of their sanity. He feels so lost and possessed by the end of the story, and he decides that he cannot kill the creature. He must kill himself. In the time that followed writing this story that had been dictated by his doppelganger, Guy de Maupassant, the author, experienced a sharp decline in his mental health. He constantly wanted to be alone and became very paranoid and fearful of death and persecution. He died in 1893 in an insane asylum after attempting to cut his own throat six months prior, meeting a similar fate as his protagonist. Now, the stories of the doppelgangers are interesting, but you have to take them with some pretty hefty grains of salt. Some of the people who saw them were under extreme stress, were mentally ill, or constantly thinking about death. Or, in the case of Percy Shelley, all three of those. Lincoln, I've recently learned, was very superstitious and was always looking for signs and omens. Also, some old mirrors just produced doubles, and it took years after he supposedly saw his double for him to meet his end. There's the out-of-body epilepsy explanation, but that's not really applicable to the wide range and types of people that have experienced the phenomenon. And, as much as I like the neat presentation of Guy de Maupassant's story syncing up with his experience with the doppelganger and his eventual fate after meeting the shadowy man that followed him through locked doors, it's all a bit too neat. I think it's a bit too easy to look for significance here. Guy de Maupassant was very mentally ill towards the end of his life, and since he not only wrote the story, but was the only source on his doppelganger coming to visit him, I think it's safe to say that it seems likely that these could be the delusions of a man slowly losing his sanity. Also, he contracted syphilis at a young age, which, left untreated, can lead to dementia. The doppelganger, to me, is more interesting as a metaphor. Those that see the doppelganger are looking at an inexorable fate, of the dark specter of mortality that stands just on the fringes of your vision, watching from the darkness. I think the responses are the most telling. You can be like Lincoln, calmly journaling about the signs and say you might not survive your second term. You can sink deeper into the abyss and resign yourself to your doom, taking the ship back in bad weather despite all advice to the contrary like Percy Shelley. Or, like Catherine the Great, you can try to defy your fate and order the guards to shoot it. That's it for the main show this week, but there's going to be an extended Creature of the Week in the form of a longer story, because it's Halloween. Because of the overwhelmingly positive response the Japanese folklore got a few weeks back, I found a story about a creepy Japanese creature. Next week, we'll finish up the story of Ragnar Lothbrok, and among the stories of him and his sons fighting a bunch of people and taking a bunch of things, there's a magical, invincible super cow that fights people, and I can't imagine why that was left out of the History Channel series. I want to say thanks to Anne Jen, Melissa, AJK Mom 23, 
L slash smiley face, Blue Bear, Smashy Face, Laura Rebecca, Cool King 918, Feather Dreams, Eliza Momo, Trust Ghost, Doki Roxy, Brandadine, Pretty with a Please, and Munkala for the reviews on iTunes. You all are amazing, and I'm really grateful for the support. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, and you can go to itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, I made a Patreon page. Patreon is a crowdfunding site where, if you want, you will be able to help support the show monetarily. You can pledge any amount of money you want, but for $5 this month, the same price as three dozen glow-in-the-dark plastic vampire teeth that will absolutely slice up your gums, you can have access to an extra episode this month, along with ebook versions of the sources I've used in the show. For the Fairy Tale Friday podcast, which will come out this Friday, I'm telling the original story of The Sleeping Beauty. If you were surprised that The Little Mermaid was so dark despite its fairly cheery adaptation, you need to hear this story. It's a story even the Grimm brothers looked at and thought they should probably clean up a bit. It will absolutely make me eat my words in The Little Mermaid podcast, where I flippantly said it was the worst fairy tale I've ever read. It's a story that I'll likely never air on the main podcast because it definitely should not be heard by children. If you're interested, you can go to support.mythpodcast.com. Like I said before, the creature of the week will be in the form of a story, so I'll get right on with it. Muso Kokushi was a Buddhist priest in Japan, and he was lost. He thought he knew the way back home, but he should have been out of the mountains hours ago. Instead, he kept passing the same gnarled tree, the same streams, the same rocks. Worse, it was getting dark and cold, and he had only planned for a day trip. After the sunset, Muso had no light or food, and he was exhausted. He would have to seek out a cave or somewhere to sleep until morning. Traversing these mountain paths in nothing but moonlight, he risked breaking a leg or plummeting off a cliff face. He broke off the road and climbed one of the smaller hills, looking for any sort of shelter. He didn't find a cave, but far off he saw a hermitage sitting atop a hill. A small, one-room stone structure built for solitary priests, he clambered towards it. He was surprised to see that despite parts of it crumbling from disrepair, there was a light on inside. He walked up to the hermitage and knocked on the wooden door. A priest flung it open in terror and looked this way and that behind Muso, and then at him. Relieved that it wasn't bandits or, you know, a giant rat goblin, Muso made to enter, but the old priest blocked his way. He said there wasn't room here. Muso would have to find somewhere else. Musa said, look around. We're on a deserted hill and the night is only getting colder. I don't know the area. Let me in. The old priest refused, though, and said that there was a little hamlet down the valley to the east. The man might be able to find lodging if he leaves right now. The priest stuck his head out and looked both ways down the path, gave Musa one last scared, disapproving look, and slammed the door. Given that he had no other options, Muso picked his way down the mountain and saw a small hamlet nestled in the valley along the road. Finally, he would be able to stay the night there and then make his way back to his temple the next day. The hamlet was just a sprinkling of farms and cottages in the valley, and Muso came to the headman, or chief, of the village and was warmly received. The man was happy to see a priest, but seemed preoccupied as he brought Muso to a room. Also, there were fifty people in the main room, talking nervously and milling around. But the headman didn't address that, and the priest didn't ask. 
He was tired, hungry, and it wasn't uncommon for the chief to have large meetings in his house. The chief supplied the priest with food and bedding, excused himself as having to attend other business, and slid the screen to the priest's room shut. The priest shrugged, ate his dinner, and immediately collapsed in exhaustion in the bedding. Shortly before midnight, he snapped awake. Weeping? Someone was crying a few rooms down. It was a deep, painful wail, and the priest briefly considered getting up to investigate before trying to go back to sleep. It was then that the screen slid open, and a young man came in with a lantern. Get up. We need to go. Still half asleep, the priest was confused, but the boy was insistent. There's been a death, the boy said. We need to go, now. Death? What death? The boy glanced around nervously, but slowed down and explained things to the priest. It had been his father, actually, and had died earlier that day. That's why there were so many people in the main room when the priest arrived. But they didn't want Musso to feel bad. It was obvious the priest was tired, and he had gotten lost in the mountains. It wasn't any trouble to give him lodging, and just because they had lost someone didn't mean that they had to refuse a kindness to a stranger. Now, however, they needed to leave. The village had already been cleared out, gone to another one three miles down the road. But in the hubbub, they almost forgot about the itinerant priest sleeping in one of the back rooms. The priest was still confused, but the young man was getting more and more nervous, looking down the hall toward the room with the body of his father. Strange things happened in this village after a death. Dark things. He didn't have time to explain, but it had been this way for years. The young man grabbed Musso's arm and said that they didn't have any more time. They needed to leave now. As he was dragged out into the hall, Musso asked if anyone had done a funeral service on the body. And the boy said, of course not. There hadn't been time. Musso pulled his hand free. He said that he would stay with the body and perform the funeral rites. Whatever strange things happened here, it didn't worry him. He didn't say this, but whatever superstition these people had wouldn't chase him away in the night. The boy fought an urge to run, but looked to the ground and thanked the priest. The boy nodded, turned, and left the house. In minutes, Musso was the only one left in the village with the corpse. He went to look at the body. It was shrouded and laid out on the floor with candles and offerings all around it. Musso, though tired, went to work reciting the service and performing the funeral ceremonies, and then he began meditating. He stayed that way for a long time, into the small, silent hours of the morning, until he had to relieve himself. He stood up, shook out the stiffness that comes with several hours of sitting, and went out of the house. It was surprising, the priest thought to himself, how silent the night was. Not just that he didn't hear the usually omnipresent sounds of people, but even the wildlife was quiet. The village sat lifeless, quiet as a tomb in the moonlight. As he walked down the hall towards the room with the corpse, he was lost in thought, and as he turned to enter the room, almost walked through the sliding screen. That's weird. He didn't remember closing it. He moved to slide it open, and something caught his eye. It was a movement in the candlelight, but too dark and too long to be just a flicker. He froze. In the shadows the candles cast on the screen, he saw the reason the villagers had fled. It was a shape, human-like, but large and monstrous. 
and he saw it lurch noiselessly across the room until it stopped, hunched, above the shape of the shrouded corpse. Then, it began eating. Musu never heard the creature, but he heard the sound it made on the body. It bit with its mouth and tore with its hands, shoving down mouthfuls of the corpse. It ate eyes and bones and organs and clothes, everything, even the shroud. Musu stood there, frozen. The thing didn't know he was here. It even turned and ate the offerings that had been left. Then, satiated, it stepped back and vanished. Musa waited another few minutes before sliding the door open, but when he did, he just saw an open window and a bare floor, only a few scraps of the clothes and some smears of blood left where the dead man had been. He knew what it was. It was a demon. A jakiniki. One of the hungry dead, cursed with a compulsion to consume corpses. During the night, it had an insatiable hunger for human flesh. But during the day, it looked just like a normal person. It could be anyone. Musso searched the corners of the room and strained out the window to see if he could see it. But there was nothing. Only the dark, empty village. He stayed in the empty room until first light, and then went outside and waited for the villagers to return. After they had eaten, he sat talking to the young man, whose father died, the one that he talked to the night before. The young man apologized for what happened on the previous night. He was scared, and he felt like he needed to get out of the village immediately. No one was surprised by what Musso had seen. They all guessed that it was one of the demons that haunted their village. Musso asked why the local priest didn't do funerals, why he hadn't done a sagaki service to banish the demon. It's a fairly simple service, and it should stop the jakiniki. Local priest? There is no local priest, the young man said. Musso explained the previous night how the man up in the hermitage had directed him towards the village, and the young man shrugged. He's lived there his whole life, and he didn't know of a priest, but there could be one up there who kept him himself or something. He didn't do anything in the village, though. The young man thanked Musso for doing the funeral last night, gave him enough food and water for the journey home, and showed him the way on the road. He was grateful for all Musso had done, and the young priest set off, leaving the village behind. He walked until he was out of sight of the waving people in the village. Musso had gotten a strange feeling from the young man, of his tacit acceptance of the situation, of his unwillingness to consider finding the old priest and doing the service. It would add a few hours to his trip, but Musa wanted to visit the old priest again, and they could complete the ritual together. They could free the people from this horrible curse. He doubled back and stepped off the road, climbing up the hills and the valley towards the priest's hermitage. Musa knocked on the door, but heard nothing. He knocked harder, but still silence. He noticed the door moved with his knocks, and he pushed it open. Inside, there was blood. Small smears on the floor and the walls, like he had seen the night before in the room with the corpse. The place was cluttered and cramped, and one of the walls was crumbling so much that Musa wondered how the old man didn't freeze to death in the winter. His eyes went to the bedding on the floor, and there was more blood and scraps. Then he heard a groan, and, in the opposite corner, he saw the crumpled form of the old man. He went to the man who had blood all over him, and Musso shook him awake. The old priest scrambled to his feet, barely acknowledging Musso's presence as he set some logs on the banked fire, and they started to catch. They sat in silence, and the priest brought the water to a boil. So, 
I suppose you saw it last night, he said. Musso nodded. The old priest said it had been there for as long as he could remember. It comes and devours the dead in this district, without fail. Musso asked the man why he hadn't done the Sagaki ritual, to dispel the thing. The old priest cast his head down in shame. He said he forgot the ritual long ago, if he ever knew it. Musso looked at him, looked at the hermitage. He hoped this accusation was wrong. You haven't done it because you can't, right? It's not that you don't know it, but the creature, it's you. The priest made a stern face, but only held it for a moment. The old man broke down in tears and doubled over. Musso helped him back up to sit, and the old man wept while the tea finished. Musso poured them some, and the old man started talking. It had been so long. He had this curse, this hunger at night, and he transformed into that thing. He couldn't control himself, but he was consumed by the hunger for dead human flesh. He would transform, and then he had to find them, and eat them. He was disgusted with himself. He hated that he did it. But it was a fitting punishment, he admitted, for the life he had lived. The old man had been a priest in that region generations ago. He remarked that it was sparsely populated now, but at that time, it was desolate. People would send loved ones to have funeral services performed on them from far, far away. The bodies would arrive in nice clothes, with nice things with them as offerings. The priest was less interested in his duties than all the things he could steal off the bodies, and he became quite rich, either from keeping the things or from selling them on his travels. Rich or poor, honorable or shameful, death comes for everyone, and it came for him one lonely winter night when the old man died of a heart attack in the hermitage, surrounded by his wealth. He knew it was coming and had accepted it, but as his life faded, a strange hunger grew. As soon as his body was still with death, he snapped back awake. He had been transformed into this demon. His exterior finally reflected the greedy monster he had been all his life. And so he fed, for all these years. The first dozen times he had been horrified by it, watching it and being both unable and unwilling to stop himself. Now, he had resigned himself to this hell. He couldn't do the ritual for himself. Musso put his hand on the shoulder of the priest. This man had been a black mark on the priesthood during his life, and he was now a monster in death. Even still, he had served his penance. He had been punished enough. Musso squeezed the shoulder of the weeping priest, knelt down beside him, and closed his eyes. He began reciting the Sagaki service, the one that would free the insatiable dead from their hunger. He finished whispering the last of the service and, suddenly, felt a breeze on his face and saw the sunlight through his eyelids. He opened his eyes and was blinded by the sun. He was outside. As he slowly saw what was all around him, he felt himself kneeling in the grass, and his hand wasn't on the old priest, but stone. He looked around. He wasn't inside the dilapidated hermitage, but surrounded by what was left of its foundations, their tops worn and weathered by centuries. No one had occupied this place in years. In the middle, where the priest had been sitting, was a headstone. Musso smiled a melancholy smile and tore the moss away from the final resting place of the priest. The date of death was hundreds of years ago. 
So ends the story of Muso and the Jikiniki. The Jikiniki is basically what you saw above, but be warned. It's not just priests that can turn into this thing, but anyone that is excessively greedy, selfish, or impious in life. So next time you feel like being too greedy, and, you know, not just a little greedy, consider if you want to look like a zombie and be cursed to consume corpses after your death for hundreds of years until a Buddhist priest happens to get lost in your region and set you free. Also, I'm guessing that everyone but Muso saw the hermitage as a moss-covered priest's tomb, and only Muso could see the old priest until he dispelled the Jikiniki part. That's just a guess, though. Muso finding himself at the tomb of the old priest, having freed him from his punishment, is a nice image to wrap the story up on, but it doesn't bear up to a lot of scrutiny. And the priest had obviously been dead the whole time, and Muso and the corpses very clearly interacted with the demon. But no one in the village could see the priest? And could they see the Jikiniki if they were in the room? Let's all not think too much about it. And, just to clarify, it was that the priest had been dead for hundreds of years, and that was his actual tomb that was revealed when Muso set him free from the demon. It wasn't that Muso was transported a couple hundred years into the future. Anyway, that's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is usually by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.